0: Episode 3 of Postscript, a podcast about soccer analysis blogs. I'm John Muller, and this is Teotl Football. Teotl, how are you doing? Do you have a good week well? off?
1: Yeah. Yeah, sorry, we didn't do one last week. Yeah, we,
0: we didn't do one last week, and part of the reason that we didn't do one last week was that we were still figuring out where our story goes from here. And part of the reason I think that it was hard to figure out where our story goes from here is that the story of soccer analysis is so, like discontinuous right yeah. tracking data which is now sort of the area of cutting edge research and soccer data analysis was available before event data Charles Reap who we've talked about this academic uh did like essentially solo the entire arc of soccer analysis from like collecting data himself uh, to getting buy-in at clubs changing the way England played soccer inventing expected goals 15 years before anybody else would hear about it if, if you go far ber- farther back than that, there were Hungarians a hundred years ago doing modern databases that I could just drop into an athletic article today, and they would look not out of place at all. So You're giving like, me a
1: hard tack I
0: mean, like the the story of soccer analysis does not make sense, is what I'm trying to get at here. And I think that has to do with kind of two main things. One is data availability, which I've said before is kind of the geological force underlying uh, this this whole story and the other is about uh, how information is shared or not, and that I think is key to the central question of this podcast, which is why are we doing a podcast about soccer blogs? What's so special about blogs? Why do they matter? I I think that today's episode is going to get into an answer to that question uh, by sort of investigating what we've already said is sort of the murky boundary between what is a blog and what is not a blog, and I think maybe we'll kind of Nail down some stuff about why that boundary matters. Uh, But before we get to all that, we're going to go back to the moment that has featured in every episode of this podcast so far, which is the 2011 Sloan Analytics Conference. Why is that so important to today's story?
1: Yeah, we we end episode one with uh, Chris Anderson and Sarah Rudd and Howard Hamilton meeting at Sloan, March 2011. And uh, then episode two, we talk about Howard and some of his early contributions. Um, this is important, our, because the, the soccer analytics blogging community sort of begins. Uh, we would say this is the spiritual birth in earnest. Uh, mm-hmm. But today, we wanted to we wanted to talk about. We'll start at this conference. Um, we have a we, record of this conference. That's right. We tried to find video of it. Like you can see video of a lot of conference talks. I mean, we you've probably seen Sloan is it, but... very good.
0: At, yeah, they post their videos all the way back to 2012, but we're just before that. Yeah. I, I actually asked Daryl Morey, the founder of Sloan, where this <laughs> video is, and he didn't even know. So like we're we're getting into prehistory here.
1: Yeah. And and what's really helpful about that is this this is a podcast about blogs. And while there's no video of this, this wonderful analytics panel that happened in 2011, there is blog posts about it. So so Howard and blog. Sarah, yeah, they, so Howard and Sarah both blog about it. I think Sarah recaps the blog, and, and this, is good, this is good content, right, if you're an early soccer analytics blogger. Howard does a, such a, a great thing. It's just amazing to see, but he live blogs the panel, right? <laughs> and so he's, like, even stuff like, and he's timestamps it, right? He's, like, 922 seating capacity is approximately 200. 944, we're 45 minutes away from the soccer analytics session. So he goes on and on and we're able to because of blogging thank Christ get get through and and try to understand what was talked about at this early analytics panel at the Sloan conference right so so here so all of our ahead.
0: three characters that we have talked about Howard Chris and Sarah they were just attendees of this conference they were just people who showed up cuz they wanted to learn more about soccer analytics That's but right. there were already like experts on this panel there were there were soccer analytics experts in 2011 who were they and and why were they kind of the people on the panel?
1: Yeah, so we've got Blake Wooster of Prozone. You mentioned this very early, like tracking data that's early out there. Data, yeah. So per, that's Prozone. We've got Steve Houston, who is at Chelsea, and 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 publicly at Chelsea. I mean, he's he's announced this way. Hmm. He's doing analytics scouting. Gavin Fleeg or Flag, I don't know how to say it. He's at Manchester City. And he's, he's sort of labeled on Howard's live blog as doing opponent preparation. Mm-hmm. And then we've got someone named Ian Graham at a company called Decision Technology.
0: And for people who don't know, I think the one important thing about the guy at Chelsea and the guy at City is that they had both come from Sam Allardyce's Bolton, which, yeah. believe it or not, like Big Sam was a pioneer in data in England. Uh, if you read histories of, you know, sort of this era that we're talking about, Big Sam is always there first and people like kind of deride him as as primitive, but really he was, he was very interested in cutting edge stuff early on.
1: Yeah, it, it's amazing. And, and so we are, we're merging as we merge, you know, the internet and blogging into a real life meetup. We're also merging here in this panel. Our our blogger heroes are are listening to what's behind closed doors at clubs or, or insight from these individuals. As you mentioned, the experts in the field that they're already there, they're already doing this. Um, yeah.
0: And and even though those two guys at Bolton had been doing this very early on, they are not who we would now think looking back right. at this list of names in twenty eleven was the star of the show.
1: That's right. Yeah. The you know, the the one on this panel that I think is most recognizable to most listeners here is is Ian Graham, who probably for most of us does not need an introduction. He's the director of research at Liverpool. There have been numerous you know, prestige articles, New York Times and other athletic sort of detailing some really cool stories about his path to Liverpool and Liverpool's sort of data revolution, et cetera. But that name jumps off the page to us sitting here you know, today. Yeah,
0: to, to the extent that the soccer analytics story has an Oakland A's and a Billy Bean, it might yeah. as well be Liverpool and Ian Graham uh and but back then he wasn't with liverpool he was listed with a company called decision technology
1: yeah so so they're a data insights company i guess you could say there's a you know roy smith's book has a, a good you know full history of this but they're they're at this point we're we're sitting in march 2011 we know now that they i don't think in public but in private they had a consulting deal with spurs delivering some insights but but more publicly their main business model i guess i would say is like a couple of things one is um, a performance index they had created sponsored by castrol like the castrol oil mm-hmm. company mm-hmm. um and then a, a contract with the times of london to provide research and insights for a weekly column
0: we're going to get to the Castro index because I think this is yeah. super interesting in analytics history, but in order to get there, I think we, we have to go back further to this newspaper column written by That's a right. dude named Danny Finkelstein, who maybe is, is very familiar to UK audiences and chances are that nobody in the U S has ever heard of him. Even the UK <laughs> audience might not know that this guy wrote a football column because he's more famous as uh, like a, a conservative op-ed columnist. I think like it's, it's, it's like, imagine that like, David Brooks had been the central figure in the Moneyball story, you know. It's <laughs> <Pretty in laughs> like, it's it's a, it's a, it's a weird uh, combination of of things. But he's he's a a very good kind of popular explainer yeah. of these ideas and his column in the Times of London started in what, 2002?
1: Yeah, and I just didn't, you know, I wasn't prepared uh, I, when we started this podcast I just didn't think we were going to go back to 2002 to discuss soccer Alex writing but here it is and and it's I mean to, to some of the themes you opened up this podcast with this is so important because this is a print newspaper a weekly column in the traditional sort of column genre you know uh yeah
0: yeah it's it's just like it's like a Friday sports column order I don't know if it was yeah sports, you know 500
1: words and uh and and yet there's something about it that that is there there are things about this column that are bloggy and that fit re- really nicely into our soccer analytics blogging history topic and then there are other things about it that are that are strictly different from blogs and we want to interrogate some of that today but also what they're writing in 2002 is cool and it it predates soccernomics i mean a lot of the What I have traditionally attributed to seminal findings and and that work are just sort of casually being dropped in a Friday column uh by Danny Finkelstein at the Times here and so we're gonna we want to we want to walk through this pay homage to it as from a historical perspective but also these other there are these loaded topics we want to want to discuss too
0: and and going back and reading these early think tank columns was it was mind-blowing for me kind of the quality of the analysis that was being done before, yeah. uh, anything else essentially. And, and I just hadn't heard about it. Like I right. would have expected this column to be super influential, but even being totally immersed in the soccer data analysis world, I hadn't really heard about the think tank very much. Uh, Adam Crafton wrote a really good athletic article that I recommend everybody look up, uh, from 2020, where he goes into some of this think tank history and how it led to the rise of the Ingram um and and as you said rory smith tells this story pretty well in expected goals his new book but other than that like this is kind of almost a forgotten piece of major analytics history here
1: yeah and and this might be a phenomenon of our specific method here of going back through written texts that we can find but when i was databasing long before this podcast became an idea when i was databasing all these soccer analytics soccer tactics early blogs one, one thing I do, we talked about it already, is I look at the blog roles of these individuals, right? Mm. Who they're reading, who they're linking to, et cetera. And the think tank just never shows up. I mean, it's, it's on a blog, so it's not going to be on a blog roll but, but these guys also, they say, here are the books I'm reading. You know, here, here's all the stuff I'm reading. And, and I just don't, the think tank isn't there. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's cool to go back and find the stuff and some of the stuff we'll talk about because it's, it, 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 it's, it's amazing that it's there in 2002.
0: And, and part of that, I think probably has to do with geography that our early bloggers were almost all American. And yeah. even though Danny Finkelstein was well-known in the UK and the times of London was well-known, uh, they, these American bloggers probably did not read the times of London and probably didn't know about this. And so one thing that is very different about blogs versus what came before blogs is the sort of global free availability of, of their ideas versus really good ideas that were happening in the times of London and probably were mostly only known to people in London.
1: And the, that contrast is, is an important relief here as we're thinking, thinking back through our project here on reading blogs. So uh, should we, I want to give like maybe a, a basic format of how these call co- these think tank columns looked, because uh, that's interesting too. Like they, they start with sort of a a personal anecdote or a joke or something topical to the times relevant to the times sometimes or a lot of.
0: He writes very like fun, breezy leads to these things, yeah,
1: they're they're play these are playful uh, columns. Um, and And then eventually, and this is what I always scan for when I'm reading through them because I'm a sicko, eventually he'll <laughs> introduce he'll say he'll he'll end his paragraph, you know his joke and his story with the question he wants to talk about of the day. Mm-hmm. He'll say, so this made me wonder. What's up with you know weather and its What's impact on with, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: like so like are is is a two goal lead the most dangerous lead in football that kind right. of question yeah,
1: and then the very next sentence is uh based on the research done by and then he mm-hmm. names individuals, and who he's mm-hmm. naming here this is important is this these are people that work at <laughs> decision technology, right at decision technology sense. so so uh the very first one that I'm looking at, it probably wasn't called the Think Tank of the Times, but this is the inspiration from it and the, the, the base of the, the start of it. He references Henry Stott, a, a risk researcher at Warwick University. Is that uh, what he calls and, him, a
0: risk researcher?
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. Okay. I, I think yeah. he drops that after a while. But um, so, so he, he'll say, here's my intro. Have you ever thought of this? Ever wondered this? He'll say, I've got, some, I got a team doing research at Decision Technology. He'll later mm-hmm. introduce them more formally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he'll get into the findings.
0: The, the way, and I'm, I'm going to cop from Roy's book again here, but the way that Finkelstein met Henry Stott was essentially that Henry Stott was a guy who knew nothing about football, didn't care about football, entered an office uh, World Cup prediction pool in 2002 uh, because he was a, you know, a data guy and, and he thought that he could bring data to bear on this stuff. I think he had found an academic paper that's now pretty famous uh, by Dixon and Coles about kind of how to build team strength models that can help you to predict uh, results. This wound up getting a little bit of press, and that little bit of press brought Stott, the academic, to Finkelstein, the columnist's attention. And these two guys kind of joining forces was the origin of this think tank column, right?
1: Yeah, and and so this is a long-running column that starts at these at those exact beginnings right and then there's a there's a more formal relationship between decision technology which that that office pool sort of births a more i mean because of this column i think a more structured soccer analytics sort of presence Mm -hmm. right there's a there's a long-running column from 2002 up to i mean it starts to slow down maybe in 2014 i i think there were posts after that but where it starts, there's a couple things that Danny Fingelstein is interested in when he when he starts this thing. Mm-hmm. One of them is comes from this sort of original office pool origin, which is predicting results better. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. creating sort of team models to to predict predict results that are going to happen better so that over time you could like beat the beat the bookings, beat the beat the the betting lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and his first, it's probably worth like, talking about this first post, because he, he intros this, this little anecdote with, here's how I bet on soccer, or, or here's how I try to predict results. And he gives like seven rules. They're like, these are this like sort of folk knowledge or legends. And we don't have to go through all of them, but it's, it's stuff like, uh, well, and part of it is a joke. He says, teams never do as well again. Well, once the manager gets a knighthood, Um, (laughs) team success is an inverse proportion to the number of of former tottenham players
0: i hope he didn't bet that knighthood rule uh against sir alex for the next decade after he wrote this right uh
1: and and manchester united do badly against their peers and win points against lesser clubs and then chelsea do the opposite so he has these sort of funny basic rules he's playing with this idea of like how people would bet on games
0: right like every every gambler has these kind of like yeah, Sort of superstitions, sort of like uh, quasi-empirical beliefs. That's right. Uh, but, but maybe, I mean, unless you're a really dedicated gambler, you probably haven't interrogated these beliefs in a really rigorous yeah. empirical statistical way. Although one, one little interesting tidbit here is that the Dixon and Coles model that Henry Stott was borrowing from, Dixon, one of the researchers there, goes on to found a company that does analytics research for a betting syndicate Run by a guy named Tony Bloom. Tony Bloom hires a guy named Matthew Benham. Tony Bloom is now the owner of Brighton. Matthew Benham is now the owner of Brentford. So in some ways, there's this whole like parallel uh analytics revolution that goes on in the gambling world that's now like really visible in the Premier League. Uh and and maybe that's like the actual story of soccer analytics, but we don't really know it because gamblers have this strong incentive to keep all this stuff secret. And we can just get the outlines of kind of who knew who
1: they do the opposite of blogging, right? But but here, uh, Finkelstein starts with like, here are all these basic rules I've been thinking about and, or, or jokes. He says, if you follow me on these, you're going to lose your house. But <laughs> instead, you know, I've got these researchers, or at, or at the time, it's Henry Stott, and they built this, you know, prediction model using data. And one th- Thing this this sort of column was going to do going forward is is put out these predictions and check in on them looking at the past two seasons matches so far this season 888 games all in we can calculate the strengths and weaknesses in the attack and defense of the teams and then take into account home advantage which is about half a goal and th- these sort of inputs go into this
0: model mm-hmm. and this is all just based on the data that was available at the time which was essentially results and goals but what they're doing there—the whole being the bookies thing, like which teams are really good, which teams are really bad—is not that different than a lot of what we like look at XG for today, or what we look yeah. at 538's SBI, which is right. you know people people want to know who's who's actually good because we all intuitively know that like results lie and uh, things fluctuate over time. But that's yeah. not to to me that's not that interesting personally. (laughs) I I don't care that much about that. Um, I care about kind of other strains of analytics. And as we were talking about this episode, we kind of like formulated it in, in four parts, like the arc of soccer analytics kind of follows these four things. There's like myth busting, which is the sort of thing that, uh, that Finkelstein I think is really drawn to. And also that like socceronomics is sort of about, there's, There's beating the bookies, uh, which, which we've just talked about. Yep. There's evaluating players, which is kind of probably the main focus of soccer analytics as it exists, at least at clubs today. Yeah, and sure. then there's the white whale solving soccer, uh, yeah. which, which kind of still hasn't really happened, or at least hasn't happened in public, but it's always floating out there. Uh, it's, it's what Charles Reap was chasing, and probably the Hungarians way back when. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah and and so of of these types, right? these early think take columns focus in, I would say, on being the bookies, prediction, team predictions, which we kind of went over in that first post. And then this myth busting you're you're talking about. Finkelstein seems to love this myth these columns that are basically he calls them myth-takes. we call them myth mm-hmm. myth busting, perhaps. And I mean, it there's a there's a passage from a pretty early column that I remember with where he says, Glenn Hoddle tells Tony Adams that you win more penalties if your captain is a striker. Is he correct? It shouldn't be too hard to figure that out. Weather is supposed to be a great equalizer. Is it? Find me the Met Office database. Football is a game of two halves, really? With the right data, it's possible to see if teams perform differently after the interval. The think tank sees its job as trying to separate nonsense from truth about the game. I want to create a community of football lovers who look at the sport differently and subject it to the sort of rigorous analysis that baseball lovers have undertaken for years. And so Which
0: as a mission statement, is really great, I think.
1: It is really good, yeah, and, and it's wild. I mean, cause we can give some examples of what he goes into, these myth-take columns over the years. You know, do underdogs perform better than their table would otherwise suggest against stronger teams because they're fighting harder? They, they find no. You know, is weather an equalizer between two teams of disparate qualities? No. You know, is football a game of two halves? Well, they find yes, it is, you know, Shot, shot volume goes way up in the, in the, as you approach, in the second half as you approach the end, but not in this idea of it's a game of two halves where one team dominates one half and the other the mm-hmm. other half. Mm-hmm. You know, our international breaks a drag on good teams, they find no. So they're constantly going through these.
0: I think there's one it, that's like, are, are teams better when they have 10 men or something crazy like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah one yeah, yeah, thing I, that I like about these myth takes is that some of them are really good and important analytical questions for understanding soccer better. And some of them, just the question itself sounds insane if you don't come right. from whatever small community held this sort of folk belief. But, yeah. but just by sort of enumerating these bits of popular wisdom and saying like, what can we investigate empirically? I think that he's doing something really important here and sort of, it's, it's yeah. a necessary precursor to the sort of statistical analysis that we're going to talk about after.
1: Yeah, if the final, the fourth, horseman of the soccer analytics apocalypse is solving soccer then then myth busting is like what you have to do at the very beginning you have to unsolve these 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 incorrect beliefs that everyone has right these superstitions and and otherwise and that takes a certain kind of like uh certain kind of interest and a certain kind of writer's interest and research and and data and and he he pulls it off uh, and, and you it's your point right this is Socronomics focuses on a lot of this stuff too, but I just didn't know. I mean, I, as far as I know, the think tank is not referenced in socceronomics, but like they hit on so many of these insights through, over the years, you know, from mm-hmm. 2002 to the time socceronomics comes out. At a certain point, um, one of the researchers on the team that's working with Stott leaves and he goes uh, to join like a, he joins the the betting industry more more formally and they, of, they need to- Yeah, that's, yeah, that's where exactly all the, right.
0: All the money and all the brains are- That are working in soccer analytics are working in gambling at this time really
1: yeah and so they they need to they need to hire someone so they end up hiring ian graham Mm -hmm. and you know this same sort of myth busting and team strength models that persists but i think this it's here where we we also see like a shift when graham comes in and the sort of things they're working on so interestingly you know graham's hired at the end of 2005 and one if it's not the first one of the first think tank articles that goes up, that has his name attached to it, like I said, there's the long intro, and then there's a, you know, the think tanks, Dr. Henry Stott, and and this is the first time I think we see Dr. Ian Graham attached to that. So he's working on the that means he's working on probably tirelessly on the insights that are going into this very short Times column. Mm-hmm. And their their question on on in this one is basically like. When is the right time to fire a manager, or Always does that a exist? Popular topic,
0: yeah.
1: Right, and I'm so struck by this is 2005. I have read many articles over the years, some of them written by you, about <laughs> uh, managers and the analytics behind firing a manager, right? Mm-hmm. And and so they 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 look at a ton of different. You can tell this project is like robust, and and finally, um, Fiegelstein writes. You know, the statisticians thought they would be able to find some pattern to all of the sacking, but for instance, you know, Aston, the Aston Villa pattern would be fairly standard. A new manager takes over, a sharp but brief improvement follows, then there's a leveling off, a sharp decline, then curtains. But this wasn't which common is, at which all. Which is
0: how, if, if you're reading the papers, that's how you hear the story told every yeah. single season, time and time again. But that's, that's not right. what Ian Graham
1: so indeed, nothing was common. So many things, the wage bill, personal relations, expectations, confuse the picture that there is no standard relationship between team strength, its fluctuation, and management tenure. The think tank did discover, unsurprisingly, that a decline usually preceded a departure. However, it wasn't clear whether this decline was long-term or a blip that would have righted itself anyways. So this leaves the question of whether sacking a manager is the right move, our data suggests that, on average, it makes no difference. On average, <laughs> managers arrive and leave without having significantly altered the team strength. The board has gone to a whole lot of trouble for nothing.
0: Danny Finkelstein, the original "Managers Don't Matter" guy. Right. Yeah, you're <laughs> off the
1: hook, John. And I mean, I'm struck. I'm struck by the timing. Right. This is 2005. I'm also struck by this is one of the early. This one of the first things that Ian Graham's name is attached to. And we mm-hmm. have this. We have this folklore. Recent f- folklore. I, I assume it's true that. Liverpool hires Jurgen Klopp, you know, in part because of Ian Graham's insight that that, the Klopp's Dortmund team had gone on sort of an unlucky run uh, and that these things sort of level out generally.
0: Yeah. That story is told. And there's a New York times article, big feature from, uh, I don't know, five years ago or whatever about Liverpool. And that was one of the key, like the, the question was like, how has analytics changed Liverpool? How has it, you know, revolutionized the game or whatever. And one way that it had revolutionized the game, according to this article, was that Ian Graham had used XG or whatever type of model to say Dortmund is actually a lot better than the results suggest. So you should snap up their manager on the cheap. That manager is your yeah. own And the rest is history.
1: Yeah. So here it is back in the, you know, in print uh, on, on, on the think tank in 05.
0: Ian Graham's on the record. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So then, the other thing that starts, you know, if if we think about the the moment that that Graham uh, joins Decision Technology, we can see him start to be referenced at the Think Tank. This is also um, a a couple years away from what seems to be another an interest of his, or or some sort of a shift in the direction of the the Think Tank columns, which is towards not just team strength models, but towards uh, player ratings.
0: Yeah, so Ingram at first helps with Finkelstein's like Managers Don't Matter Take, you know, really fun stuff like that that's yeah. possible with like results data. But at some point he gets his hands on event data, which is just a, a way richer uh, amount of information about the game. It's hundreds or thousands of records of every on-ball action. Uh, and this is still like what's used by lots of clubs around the world for recruiting purposes. Like it's kind of what we think of as soccer data today. Ian Graham was one of the first guys to really get his hands dirty with it, and he realizes right away, like, one of the interesting things that I can do with this is figure out which players are really good and which ones aren't, because before that, the only stats that you had for that was, like, who scored a lot of goals, which is not very useful for evaluating most players. He comes up with something different that they talk about on uh, on the think tank a lot called the Castro index. And the think tank does, I think, in 2008, introduce this thing called the Castro Index and gives like a, a little explainer. But because that's behind the Times paywall, yeah. Uh, and and also because uh, I don't know, it's just fun to hear like British voices explain things to us. Let's let's go to a different explainer that basically says the same thing that was published on YouTube in 2009 that tells us what this Caswell Index was. Uh let's let's like actually watch it so we have it fresh in our heads what it says.
2: As an official sponsor of the 2010 FIFA World Cup, we've developed a definitive system for rating the world's best players. The Castrol Index uses the latest technology to objectively analyze and rank player performance. The Castrol Index tracks every move on the field and assesses whether it has a positive or negative impact on a team's ability to score or concede a goal. A key factor for all areas of performance in the Castrol Index is which zone on the pitch the action takes place. Players receive points for each successful pass they complete. But the number of points awarded depends on which zones the ball is passed from and received in. Similarly misplaced or intercepted passes are penalised depending on how much trouble the mistake is likely to land the team in. The Castro Index is also able to split up the rewards of a goal between penalising the goalkeeper for letting in a shot he should have saved and rewarding the attacker for scoring a goal. The number of points awarded for tackles, interceptions and blocked shots also depends on which zone they're made. Successfully tackling the ball from a striker near the penalty spot will earn more points than a tackle out on the wing. Conceding free kicks and penalties will result in deductions. Castrol's team of performance analysts crunch all the data and award each player a score out of ten. The higher the score, the better the player's performance. The Castrol Index can help you see football from a completely different perspective you'll now know which players truly deserve to grab all the headlines. So what do we make of all
0: that? What, what does this explainer mean? What is this model?
2: Yeah,
1: and the listeners can't see the amazing graphics in the video. It looks like an old video game. But, uh, you know, it, when, I, when I'm watching that and listening to it, I'm just I'm thinking about this, this idea we talked about with Howard Hamilton and goal probability changing based on different actions. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's what they're talking about here.
0: I think maybe they're even going a step beyond what Howard was contemplating in that post that we talked about, because it sounded like he was interested in sort of correlations between different categories of stats and goal probabilities. And because Ian has seen this line by line, event by event data, he realizes that we can do something better than that, which is look at events in context and critically look at what zone on the pitch they happen in. Yeah. Uh, we can we can look at ball progression, which is a key part of goal probabilities.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean what you're talking about is expected threat uh, in recent years and, and goals added and on-ball value, these sorts of possession value ideas that have been the focus of analytics work in like the last couple of years, but we're not for a very long time. But it's it's here being sort of like visually shown and explained in this video, which
0: sort of blows me away. Yeah, I think this is like the first public possession value explainer, right?
1: Yeah, I mean this, it's, uh, they so they launched this thing in Euro 08 and it shows up on the on the blog in 08, 09, 10, and it, and it runs for a while. Which, what year is this video? Let's see.
0: So this video uh, is from 2009. Uh, it was posted on YouTube by Castrol. And here's what I love, right? This is, as far as I know, the earliest public explanation of what we now know of as possession value models. Yeah. It's like a landmark in analytics history. It gets no views on YouTube, like 4,000 views, I think in the 13 years that this has been public <laughs> and like one comment that just basically says, this is shit. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's, like, it's such a perfect, like the story of soccer. analytics right there.
1: It is. I mean, the one comment says it's shit. And like, I, I don't recall, To your point, this is sort of like landmark, but what we don't have is blogs and blogs and blogs about how this is a breakthrough and and analytics and and part of the reason and this is one of the things we're trying to interrogate today is you know where this is explained it shows up on this video you know I don't think anybody's following the Castrol corporate YouTube (laughs) channel. (laughs) First of all, it's early for it's not early but it's it's earlier for this sort of thing to be like following and you know like subscribe and pound the like button whatever for the youtube uh channels but yeah it's who's out there looking for the castrol youtube videos
0: yeah 2009 youtube was not 2022 youtube by any means yes. and yeah people did not interact with brands back then it was a, <laughs> a better God. time <laughs> yeah and it
1: and then where it is explained right you know it, this is you know we'll We'll leave this as the explanation because this is, this is well explained in this YouTube video, but the other place it's, it's explained and talked about at this time, you know, 0809 is on the think tank, a, you know, print, and it's, it's being posted online, surely, but paywalled, right? A subscription, mm-hmm. uh, periodical column, like you gotta, you gotta pay to read it, and it's, what it's not is a blog. Like, there mm-hmm. wasn't, as far as I know... You know a launch with five different blog posts talking about the Castro index, what we can use it for. there's not a sec there's not a nerdy section at the bottom of a blog post, which you would which would come to be more common several years from this describing the methods and the the mathematical models and the and the stats behind it right yeah and
0: and that's probably a key reason that the bloggers that we talk about don't really pick up on this. Maybe yeah. it was just availability of information, but also yeah. surely this would have been discussed more if there had been a methodology, like the YouTube video and the Finkelstein column yeah. both do a good kind of popular general explanation of what this model is doing and how, but it's not something that somebody else can look at the methods, think, hey, I know some ways to improve on this. Uh, I can compare my results against the results of this model. Uh, you, you, and- there's, there's no data really out there about this other than like Finkelstein dropping occasional this player is rated highly type of thing.
1: Partly because it's it's proprietary, right? They're, they're making money off this. They've they've sold it to Castrol. And then mm-hmm. Castrol has taken it and said, you know what's interesting about this? Like, let's flatten it into zero to 10. You know, it, like, let's make every player rated zero to 10 and multiply it times a thousand right. and just post them out on our rankings and, and get people fired up on our, our website.
0: Might or might not be a good move for getting people fired up, but it's a really bad move for... The key analytics inside here which is let's talk about actions in terms of goal probabilities because those goal probabilities disappear into these player ratings
1: yeah 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 the units of account obscure what this really cool inside that's going on behind it and i'm the, and the thing is right decision technology and grant they may have been you know they might have been delighted with that because it, it it remains proprietary um it goes into the think tank which is you know generating revenue for them and to a sponsored castrol project right mm-hmm. but then also what you know w- what starts to happen around now is we sort of know in hindsight now that Tottenham Hotspur reaches out to uh decision technology or vice versa they get they get hooked up and they're helping with some analytics insights recruitment etc
0: there's another key figure here uh whose name you may have heard before Billy Bean uh, <laughs> the way that. that the way that this happens is Billy Bean, uh, you know, becomes a star thanks to Moneyball in 2003. And this guy, Kamoli, who's the technical director at Spurs in circa 2008, reads Moneyball, has his mind blown, reaches out to Billy Bean. Billy Bean has read Think Tank, and he's like, hey, we should get this dude, Henry Stott, and his little team of researchers to come work at Tottenham Hotspur and help you, Kamoli, do analytics. And this is should have been at least another key landmark in the analytics story
1: that's right but it it, it's it is um private behind the scenes right um but certainly would have i mean that one reason the the underlying mechanics under the castro index being kept secret is is helpful for that is they can use it for recruitment to value players and do all these other things right Mm -hmm. and that if you publish
0: the methods of your model it's not very useful for that because then anyone's got it. it yeah
1: if they're listening right the, it's a long arc but
0: although i think at one point finkelstein says in like 2004 2005 nobody in football cares about what i'm doing except for sam miller dice yeah. <laughs> <That's a good laughs> so there's there's only one person listening in the football world before camoli
1: and so I, I think the the other interesting thing around this time because this you know this comes out in 08 and i think they're consulting with spurs 06 then exclusively in 08 is that this is all behind a paywall uh and there's a model that's that's being sponsored by by castrol and spitting out rankings but but something else sort of cool happens that i don't this you know i everyone's heard of billy bean i i wagered Many people uh, listening to the podcast had not heard of the, of the Think Tank, although I know many had. Mm-hmm. But I'm almost certain, like, very few listeners listening to this know about this uh, blog called The Football Laboratory.
0: One of, one <laughs> of our archaeological findings here.
1: It's the footballlaboratory.wordpress.com.: the, the first post uh, by this, at this mysterious blog is, is in <laughs> November of 2006. And it says hello world and it's just a picture of a, a seagull <laughs>
0: <laughs> i don't and know it, why it's a picture of a seagull but i do feel like the hello world should have given us a clue that this was a coder writing this blog
1: yeah, yeah. and there's one comment and the comment is is from a guy named ian that says this is a comment <laughs> and of course the, the author of this blog is ian graham mm-hmm. uh he, he has started a personal blog to sort of like fill in additional thoughts that don't don't make it into the think tank column. I think is that's what's going on. So yeah, and it's uh, it
0: is a soccer analytics blog. It's got like rolling team strength charts and stuff, right?
1: Yeah, and 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 less formal you know discussions as well. It is like a proper blog. Unfortunately like short lived um, and there are not many posts, but I that is like a treasure that we could give the the listeners here. Yeah, I don't an think episode, anybody has ever read this blog. <laughs> yeah, on an episode about, you know, the the differences between a sort of paywall-subscribed print uh, column writing about soccer analytics in 2002, and then the, the sort of blogs we had been covering on previous episodes. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an interesting middle ground to like to note as a as a footnote in the in the history of this. So, Instagram yeah. blogging, and, and that's why makes maybe it makes the podcast
0: yeah, we've kind of hit on I think three different obstacles to like the sharing of soccer analytics knowledge, the progress of soccer analytics as a field. Right? You can be in the Times of London, uh, having your research discussed by a very prominent columnist, and you can be super influential locally, and maybe Billy Bean will even read the column and hire you to work at a club. Like that's that's one way that you can be influential, and yet you'll be forgotten because. Just nobody has access to this outside of London at that time. You can also be a super smart guy doing soccer analytics publicly on a blog, but if you don't find other bloggers to interact with because Twitter hasn't been invented yet, uh, and because nobody's got you on their blog roll, you can be forgotten that way. Or you can be sponsored by a major international corporation and you can be on YouTube, which is now like the world's biggest media platform. And you can explain a groundbreaking model years before anybody else has thought of this. And you can still be forgotten, except by the one guy who thinks that you're shit. Uh, (laughs) Because because you didn't really explain your methods. You didn't share data. Uh, So even though you had a nice popular model, it wasn't something that people could build on to continue the progress of soccer Mm -hmm. analytics that way.
1: Yeah. And and so on, on that note too, right, Decision Technology, their business model is selling to the Times of London, uh, their research for this weekly column, and then they've got the sponsorship with, with Castrol. Um, interestingly, as we move forward in time, right, we started this episode in our seminal 2011 moment, and we went all the way back to 2002, which is why the, the musical intro will be slightly earlier than <laughs> previous episodes. Um, you know, in 2011, Decision Technology starts blogging too right in addition Mm -hmm. to their what what they're doing for the think tank they're they're now the authors of of analysis and they're doing blog posts and ian graham starts blogging there too
0: yeah and this blog does make it into our circles so ian graham's solo blog in 2006 i don't think anybody ever read it the decision technology blog gets onto the blog roles of howard and and chris and like becomes part of this story so ian graham does very briefly interact with our early bloggers not just by giving the sloan panel but by posting blogs what was he writing about on the deck tech, tech blog
1: yeah so there's a so it's it's him and then some others that are working at the company are blogging. and and you know from august of 2011 is when it starts to when he leaves decision technology and joins liverpool in early 2012. you know there's maybe i think it's something like 25 posts and half of them are his The first one is his as well. So he, you know, he's sitting out there. He had a personal blog. He was blogging, uh, limited readership. But then something that happens is episode one and two of this podcast catch up and the blogging community starts to build, right? 2011, which we haven't really gotten to yet um, properly in the timeline sees a, a big growth in analytics blogging it's chris sarah howard but then there's many many more that jump on um mm-hmm. that sort of soccer analyst website they create to house soccer an, you know analytics starts to build and build and we get a very vibrant um soccer analytics blogging scene and i think decision technology is seeing that right and they're mm-hmm. like they're like we can do this stuff behind closed doors we can also get the word out there that we have these insights and try to join the conversation um but so to your question like I think you know the blog post i would highlight for this one is the first or one of the first uh posts at decision technology Ian grants writing and it is it's about the second uh, season syndrome so clubs that were promoted from the championship up to the premier league there is this sort of adage that a lot of times they have a great first year because of whatever like they Mm -hmm. extra adrenaline or excitement some kind of inspiration from the fans or maybe maybe clubs aren't um they're used to seeing them play they don't know them that well and so they do very well and then there's this sort of sophomore slump second season syndrome Mm -hmm. where they they might do really well the first year then they go down the second year this was sort of this conventional wisdom and Ian Graham looks at this and he uses the tools that decision technology had built um that that was being used in the think tank articles and he is able to see Um, Hey, actually a lot of what's happening here is like survivor bias. So Mm -hmm. one thing that happens when clubs come up, we're able to compute their underlying strength, right? Based on this data that we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Clubs that play right at their underlying strength, they usually go down, right? They often go down. Teams that hang around are the ones that exceeded their underlying strength for any number of reasons, but which could have been chance, right? And mm-hmm. so what he finds is those teams are the ones we talk about with the second season syndrome, because in that second season they just they perform back to their underlying strength based on right. Their, they haven't really gotten you know, better their,
0: or worse between season one yeah. and season two. They just got less lucky, and that's right. So they, so they, they had, had a boost power. in that yeah.
1: first season, and they they go back to being who they are, and that might go down or it might stay up. Right. That's and, a great. So blog. That's an example. Yeah, I, I love it. That's an example of the sort of you know the transition from decision technology providing research to someone who's writing the column to you know getting their voice out there on their own um
0: but it's taking these advanced analytics tools and it's going back to myth busting yeah right? which which I right. think works which works really well like as an interesting blog post but doesn't necessarily move the ball forward on the long historical arc of soccer analytics or whatever that's probably being, yeah well i i I hope, you know, I hope that that arc bends toward solving soccer. I don't know if it does yet, but it definitely bends toward recruiting players based on data models, and that's what Decision Technology was using these models for behind the scenes at Spurs, and that's what's going to get Ian Graham hired at Liverpool. Uh, yeah. Do you want to do want to walk us through kind of how that little, I mean, just as a as a as a yeah, footnote just, to this story, how does how does Ian Graham wind up at Liverpool from Decision Technology like? He's a blogger in 2011, and then he goes dark. He disappears.
1: Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, they've got this consulting contract with, with Spurs. And I think Michael Edwards is there at Spurs. And then, well, and, and Damien Comolli was there. and Damien Kamoli is sacked. And eventually, Liverpool hires Edwards. Edwards mm-hmm. has worked with Graham. Um, and essentially, there, it's funny that, it, you know, it, um, in Rory's book, he's talking about they're flying to the next year's Sloan. Uh, analytics conference Mm -hmm. in 2012 when Edwards pitches to him, hey, do you want to join uh, Liverpool? And it takes some working out, I guess. Um,
0: Okay, so on the plane to Sloan 2012, Michael Edwards pitches Ian Graham, uh, who's sort of a consultant for Spurs, and he's like, hey, come in-house at Liverpool. What happens to decision technology?
1: Well, so decision technology keeps ongoing i mean i'm sure it was a blow to lose graham but they you know they keep supplying think tank with research and insights should they backfill his position uh you know that column continues decision technology also um keeps blogging Mm -hmm. for for many years um just sort of from our blogging history method perspective uh but it it, you know it's it's missing Ian graham No more Ian Graham posts uh, Mm. after maybe February 2012.
0: And they're also, I think, probably keeping their cards a little close to the chest, right? The most interesting stuff that Decision Technology is doing is not, they're not blogging about it. That's right. They're sharing it with Tottenham so they can make money. And I think that in, in Rory's book, he says that Tottenham at one point considered buying Decision Technology outright and decided not to do it because Daniel Levy hates spending money but I I think that you mentioned to me that John Henry also thought about buying them.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I think Henry tries to buy, he approaches decision technology and says, can we bring you guys just fully in house and, and, and buy the company. And Henry Stott is, he basically says, I don't think we can, because we have this consulting contract with Spurs and that would, that would break that contract or it wouldn't be right, et cetera, et cetera. So then that's, I think then Henry's and Henry's like, probably reading the blog he's probably reading Ian graham blogging and going okay what about that guy though and so that's so so then edward edwards approaches graham directly
0: well and of course henry had a relationship with billy bean and billy bean had been reading the think tank and everybody knows everybody in this very very tiny world back then but i guess the reason that this whole epilogue about how ian graham exits the blogging scene is important is that it also shows how Uh, information is sort of lost right we're going to see this happen a lot how knowledge is lost in the soccer analytics world which is essentially that somebody bursts on the scene they get new data they start a new blog whatever they have some new insights and then immediately a club notices hey there's public information out here that could be useful to us let's hire this person let's make them stop blogging Uh, And then, you know, the blog goes dark and only people who go on the Wayback Machine ever rediscover this stuff.
1: Yeah, Ian Graham, obviously a hugely influential figure in soccer analytics history. His thoughts don't permeate through the blogosphere at this time for all the stuff he's working on for for reasons. We reflect on this now today because we we know that I I mentioned the soccer analytics blog and community is really up and running at this point in 2011. Yeah. and it will grow from there but but they're going to run in a direction that's not necessarily you know every touch on ball um, goal probability models the way that, that that's sitting behind the Castro index here and and something that we suspect goes into into clubs right it, it goes into Liverpool right and we and we even know this from I think there's an article training ground guru et cetera, where they, they talk about this sort of currency of uh, yeah, he value. talks about
0: it in the New York Times article as well. Like we yeah. know that Liverpool keeps doing possession value stuff. We yeah. know from Roy's book that Spurs were using this possession value model to inform their recruiting. This continues to be uh, kind of the core insight of soccer analytics, as being done by clubs that that are smart about this stuff. Yeah. And yet the blogging community sort of loses this knowledge. And we'll talk about another version of this model that was public and then more or less forgotten uh it's 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 like i don't know it's 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 our eden uh we we fell from grace we went off in a different direction We're yeah, falling. And, and we yeah we, we really should have held on to this uh let's measure everything on the pitch in terms of goal probabilities because that's what soccer analytics should be and that's what howard pointed us to in 2008 but okay but but we'll we'll get to all that uh we're going to talk about what happens in analytics next Um, but we're not quite done with this era so we're going to talk a little bit more I think about uh, another key pioneer one of our three musketeers we're going to come back to Sarah Rudd
1: yeah because it's worth bringing it back to again um, you know we, we talked about Howard Hamilton's live blog of that 2011 Sloan conference the panel that Ian Grant is sitting on Sarah Rudd posts a blog after this, which is a recap of the conference. And I, I do want to read from this. She says, she's talking about the get together and, and the um, the meetup with the other bloggers. She says, that evening was the soccer analyst get together and I got to put some faces to the names I've been reading for the last few months. It was great to meet everyone and find out that a lot of us have common goals and desires. Two main things that people are after, better access to data and a central place to share and discuss ideas. Based on the mm-hmm. chat, I decided to launch socceranalyst.com. A one-stop shop for all the latest in soccer analytics if you're interested let me know
0: i love that she clearly identifies those two things that i laid out at the start of the episode yeah not even having read sarah's blog post but data availability yeah, yeah. and information sharing are the two like key forces in this whole, and then she this says culture. to address
1: the data issue i was pleased to learn that stat dna is having a data analysis competition they're giving entrance access several hundred matches worth of data and asking them to come up with the best analysis details about the contest can be found at their blog huh. so i think it's more of and, a teaser of just what's coming it's this she's going to enter this fucking contest okay. you know
0: <laughs> yeah she's going to enter this contest by getting data from a blog and it's going to be a really cool story that we will talk about next time thank you for listening i'm john Mueller. this has been totally o- fuck <laughs> i'm john muller This has been Toyota Football and we'll see you guys next time.
1: See you later. Post credits, secret scene, Easter egg. If you've listened to the whole podcast by now and you made it through the outro music, you are as sick as I am and you'll surely enjoy this little nugget that I found. So on the podcast, you know, John and I were talking about, there's this old forgotten blog by Ian Graham, the current director of research at Liverpool. It's called The Football Laboratory. It runs from November of 2006 to March 2008. It's probably no more than a dozen posts in there. Um, so I, after we recorded the podcast, I was just like browsing through. And, and, you know, on this project, we we read the blog posts, but we also check the blog rolls of all these old blogs because it's sort of how we stitch together um, a sense of the community, the blogging community at the time. It's also a completeness check for us. And the blog roll is a, is a good metaphor for just the, what the project is trying to, trying to animate, right, of why blogging is cool and why it's important for the history. So anyways, I, I look at Ian Graham's blog role and it's not very large. Like, in 2006, there's no Howard Hamilton soccer metrics. There's no Chris Anderson soccer by the numbers. No Sarah Rudd on football. But there is this blog called Numeri di Calcio. I think that's the numbers of football in Italian. And I, I click in expecting to find maybe like a really early analytics blog that's in Italian like I'm guessing I'm not gonna be able to read it Um, and and that's incorrect so it's a it's a soccer analytics blog written by an American that runs from August 2006 to May 2007 so not prolific and and not long-lasting probably not well read but it predates you know the spiritual birth of soccer analytics blogging we cover in episode one it predates Howard Hamilton in episode two and i click around in there and i find a post called english club ratings explanation and i click into this one because it's one of the only posts with like multiple comments and what he's explaining in this post is he's got this team strength model that he's using to predict match results and and season results across europe and and then he's explaining how he does it for the english football pyramid because they this there's this novelty of of what it means when a team that was in one league goes up to the next league and what do you do about their team strength in that in that situation you can read it and anyways i, I scroll down to the comments because i was curious what sort of interaction it was getting in the first comment and like one of the only commenters on this whole blog as far as i can tell is a guy named ian and it says hi great article are you aware of the work of the think tank at the times online? co.uk we have a similar system where." by teams are ranked according to past results and he talks about the content of the post a little bit and then he ends his comment with by the way are you the Voros from Moneyball and then the author responds to this comment and says hey and yes I am the Moneyball Voros so I clicked over to like the about the blog page um, and i I realized that this blog is is written by Voros McCracken um and, and if you don't know and and i I didn't remember this either but so v- voros McCracken is is a baseball sabermetrician that literally is you know the subject of one of the chapters or part of a chapter in moneyball he came up with this thing called defense independent pitching statistics the idea was that. For a long time in baseball and in baseball sabermetrics there was no way to separate uh the pitching performance from the fielding performance behind him and through some some clever math he was able to do that and so henceforth we recognize that balls batted into play are sort of mostly outside of the control of the pitcher whereas um you know walks and home runs and strikeouts those are in control of the pitcher so he did some some things there we now have this thing called deep Defense-independent pitching statistics, or DIPS, so it's a big deal in, in baseball baseball sabermetrics history, and I'm just like uh, losing my mind at the idea that in 2006 there are these two like not widely-read blogs, one written by the current director of analytics at Liverpool, and the other written by like one of the sabermetrics baseball legends, and they're just like commenting to each other down below the blog posts um so anyways i thought that was cool the other thing i guess is i was researching uh, voros and it turns out he did do some consulting maybe around this time with a football club or two as far as i know it's never been publicly released who that was but if you're listening to this and you know the answer to it i would love to know i'm curious so Appreciate that. All right. See ya.